you're worshiping together with us today, I, I trust, because you have something in common with the original recipients of this letter. This letter from James. Sometime in the past, you came to a place in your life where you recognized your need with some desperation of forgiveness from a holy God. Only desperate people come to Christ. So you reached out for the only person who could make that forgiveness possible, which is Jesus Christ, who has already accomplished everything that we need for salvation by laying down His life in place of ours and accepting the full weight of the judgment you and I deserved. And then doing something only He could do, rising again from the dead. You placed your faith in Him. And for those of us who have embraced this Savior, Jesus Christ, it is a gladness and an assurance that we can't explain to know that when we placed our faith in Him, we were gloriously and eternally saved, justified, born again, rescued, ransomed, redeemed. And now James writes to say, here's how you live like eternally saved, justified, born again, rescued, ransomed, redeemed people. Now when James writes this letter to these Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the empire to escape the severe persecution that had come to Jerusalem where James was, it it had been only, I would venture to guess, about 15 years since Jesus died and rose again. Only about 15 years between the death and resurrection and the writing of this letter. Even less than that, really, I would argue. Some of those believers who originally received a copy of this letter were uh, uh, those in Jerusalem during the time when Jesus ministered there. They could have easily met Jesus themselves or at least been an onlooker in the crowd as Jesus taught in the temple and as he ministered in the streets of Jerusalem. They could have seen his miracles, the very people that are receiving this letter. They could have seen Jesus' miracles. The man that Jesus healed who was born blind because he was in Jerusalem, he was sent to the pool of Siloam and he came seeing, he may even be in this crowd of recipients receiving this letter. Those who lived in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, maybe there were even some who cried out, crucify him, who are now believers receiving this letter. But if they had been residents of Jerusalem and Jesus lived and was arrested and suffered and died, they were also residents when he rose again, when he ascended to be with the Father, promising to return. And they were in Jerusalem a couple of weeks after that when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon believers and the gospel of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus began to be proclaimed and they heard the good news and they were saved. These Jewish believers are members of those to whom James writes when he addresses them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion in James 1.1. They are historically unique, this group of people he's writing to. And James is pastoring them in this letter, scattered as they are, scattering throughout the empire, suffering hardship, having to wander, having to resettle in another place that wasn't their home. And he's saying to them, this is how you live up to your faith. 
This is how you behave like the believer you say you are, even in times of pressure, even as you await the promise that Jesus gave the night that he was arrested less than 15 years earlier. He said, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And this group of people are waiting for that coming. Every generation of believers since this one has been waiting for that coming. In these first 12 verses of chapter 5, the center of James' message is found in verse 7. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient. It's, it's the Greek word macro through mia. We, we have uh, the word macro in a lot of things in English. It means something big, something large. This means something long. Macro thumeo, to suffer long, to forbear, to persevere, to keep going despite hardship as we wait for a better end. And James will go on in the next verses to illustrate this patience to the example of the patient uh, working farmer who lives in anticipation of the joy of the harvest and the patient steadfastness of the chosen Old Testament prophets and even the well-known Old Testament character Job. He's going to mention that in this text. Each of these is an example of enduring patience and anticipation of this great and promised joy. You know, if you want to be moved to tears, Google videos that record the moment a soldier surprises his family by returning from active duty unannounced. The family members think the soldier is deployed, but then suddenly he appears at the front door, maybe at some church activity or some school activity. The videos differ. Sometimes he comes to the classroom where his children are. Some other event may be meant to honor the soldiers, and he's there and his family doesn't know it, and he surprises them. Sometimes it's a son or a daughter who's supposed to be off in Afghanistan or Iraq or some other far-off deployment, and they come into the living room to surprise their parents. Sometimes it's a husband surprising a wife or a dad or a mom surprising children. And it's very moving. But if if you've studied those videos, if you've watched them, you notice that there are stages in the reaction. Uh, Stages in the reaction on the part of the child or the wife or the mom or the dad. It's different sort of depending on the age group. But first there's this recognition. And it takes a moment or two sometimes because the person is not expecting to see him standing there. And the brain is trying to process. But after recognition, there isn't always this immediate cry and and joy and emotional embrace. Not in the most emotional videos. What often happens, especially with a wife or a mom, is that she will be overwhelmed by a flood of emotions that she cannot process all at once. Sheer joy and relief and profound gladness and love. And she will only be able to stand there. And often the hand goes to the mouth and the tears start to come. And finally, when she gets composure of herself, comes the strong embrace and the sobs and the shouts of joy. Like I said, they're very emotional. And these videos give you a deep respect for our military and these families all over our country who understand what it's like to have a family member deployed and what it's like to see them safely return. Because when they, re- when they return, the strong emotional reaction is not about that moment only. 
It's about all of the moments leading up to it. That spouse or those parents or those children live with the reality that someone they deeply love is away. And oftentimes they may not even know where they are or whether they are safe. And in most situations it's very difficult and trying for the rest of the family when a soldier is deployed. Especially when they leave behind a single parent household. So they think about them and pray for them every day and they yearn for the time when they can be reunited. They live each day in anticipation of that day. And when that hope is suddenly and unexpectedly realized, it's like a cascade of grateful joy that comes flooding down upon the soul. I wonder if in any way I might also be describing our anticipation of the Lord's return. If He were to return for us today suddenly, unexpectedly, would there be a recognition followed by a flood of grateful joy And then a response, maybe not a a full-out embrace, but I imagine at least a falling down upon the face. I suppose it depends upon the reality that we live with every day leading up to His coming. Do we anticipate the coming? Do we yearn for it because we long for Him? In the words of Hebrews 9.28, we eagerly await His coming. Do we urge that day on, 2 Peter 3.12? Like John who ends the entire New Testament canon with the words, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Or simply put in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, do we love the appearing? When we opened this text last week, I spent some time explaining the reason it is difficult for many of us to actively love and look forward to every single day with great anticipation the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when prompted, we say with John, Amen, come Lord Jesus. But in our hearts, we know there are things we would like to do on this earth before He comes. James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And we're like, well, that's a command I can easily keep. I mean, I wasn't really that impatient to begin with. And I may make light of our attitude here, but honestly, if we, compl- if we claim to love uh, someone who is coming for a visit and we kind of wish they weren't because it was going to interrupt our schedule, don't you think that would put a damper on the relationship? So why don't we anticipate the return of the Lord with the affection and longing He deserves? I think there are at least two reasons. I mentioned them last week. First, we don't feel the draw to be with our Lord like we should. But secondly, neither do we feel the rejection of this world, the push away from the world like we should. But clustered around this admonition, be patient, therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord, James encourages these scattered believers in a way that I think helps all of us today to deepen in our love for and appreciation for the Lord's return. James teaches us to wait for the Lord's return patiently by focusing our attention on four aspects of this patient. The first way he does this, and we saw this last week, is to focus on the rejection part, the pushing away, our feeling alienated from this world, like we don't really belong here. He reminds us how sinfully cruel the world actually is and how the righteous in most time periods and in most places of the world will be persecuted by those who reject the gospel. We don't think it's happening 
very much because we live in the United States, but it is happening in many places around the world. So aspect number one is the patience and eschatological context. In other words, the end times, when Jesus finally comes, and we never know when that day is going to start. In the last day, when the Lord judges the world, believers who have been suffering or who have suffered patiently waiting for the Lord while living for Him on this earth will finally be vindicated. The stories we've heard of people who have suffered terrible things because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be shown to be in the right. The world rejected them, but they are on the right side. And those who hated them, those who rejected the gospel, will be judged. James lets us know how certain this judgment is by styling this opening of this part of the letter like an Old Testament prophet. We looked at this a little bit last week. He, he pronounces like an Old Testament prophet judgment upon the ungodly. He says, come now, you rich, by which he means the wicked rich who use their resources greedily to oppress and, and, and further enrich themselves. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you in the judgment, in the eschaton. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosions will be, their corrosion will be evidence against you. That's all they laid up for. And will eat your flesh like fire, a reference to eternal judgments. You have laid up treasure in the last days. They've treasured up wrath for themselves. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is saying this is uh, what you have done to the, to the righteous. You have oppressed them. But James is not saying this for the benefit of these wicked rich to call them to repentance. The reason he's saying this is to encourage those who are righteous, who are suffering among James' recipients of the letter, those who are actually mowing the fields, as he mentioned here, those who suffered so much oppression that some of them have even died. James is telling them, be patient because they are going to be judged. You are going to be vindicated. And he emphasizes this and encourages us in this by pronouncing judgment upon them in their hearing in the letter. James says, be patient. Their day is coming. The injustice will be put to rights. Now, for most of us, we can appreciate that as far as it goes. But very few of us have known this kind of intense push away from the world. Most of us have not known that kind of, per, uh, of persecution. I say most of us. I said that last week as well, and I'm glad I did. Because after the service, standing out in the hallway out here, I talked with one of our college students who introduced herself to me. She's been coming to Gateway for a while, and she's from China, where her father is the pastor of an underground church. He said, yes, the other week the police showed up and took him from our house question him for several hours and let him go. We were grateful for that. But they keep it in mind that we know what you're doing and we can interrupt this anytime. I don't live with that as a pastor. I don't know many pastors in America who live with anything like that. But it's always something to keep in mind in China. The week before, 
There was a couple who came to worship with her father's church, she said, on the Lord's Day. And this wife gave testimony that recently she had been jailed and beaten because the government knew that she was a Christian. That's happening all the time in our world. There are many believers in the world that we may never meet on this earth who feel keenly this push away, this rejection, who long for the vindication of the righteous. And I dare say that the older many of us grow in the Lord and the more discouraged we become that the world does not know God, when we see the sheer hubris of ungodliness and the rejection of biblical values and the in-your-face parade of wickedness in the public square, not to mention how weird we, we are in wrestling with our own sin, we sense this growing realization that this world is not our home. And we begin to long for our true home and eternity with the Lord. But even as this part of our sanctification continues to do its work, growing our dissatisfaction for this world, I think that it is even more important that we grow with respect to the draw that we feel toward the Lord because we love Him. And therefore, we love the idea of seeing Him in His coming. So how do we grow in this respect? We, we sense the push away. How do we grow in the sense of the draw toward? Well, not too long ago, we were working through the beginning of James 4. And the issue of deviant devotion. I don't know if we did this during uh, the time when a lot of our college students came back. So some of this might be new. And I would encourage you to find that uh, sermon at the beginning of James chapter 4 because we, we talked about misplaced affections and the question was raised, how do we love what we're supposed to love when we don't love it? And let's be flat out honest. Do we love the Lord like we should? We're told to all the time. But do we really love Him? And, 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 and believers can become frustrated. Well, well, how do I just make myself love when I don't love? If I'm being flat out honest. How do I embrace what I just, I'm not drawn to? More specifically, how do we love the Lord when we don't love Him like we should? And James shows us, in essence, in, in chapter 4, that we learn to love God with our heart when we begin to obey God with all our hearts. Obedience is the key because we're told to love. But we have this idea in our, our culture that we have to work up feelings for something before we love it. Secular marriage is based on that principle. That's why people leave each other in marriage and they say, well, we just don't love each other anymore. And that seems to be okay. I mean, they understand, right? No, that's not what it's all about. It's about obedience, about making a commitment and sticking to it. And that idea is lost in our culture and it's bled into the church. And we feel like we've got to work up these emotions. We've got to feel a certain way in order for us to obey God. But that's not the way the New Testament presents it. In fact, the, the New Testament speaks about obeying the gospel. Knowing that the gospel message is proclaimed and we submit to it. We don't have to feel a certain way about it. We just have to believe that that's true and submit to it. So we learn to love God with all our heart when we begin to obey God with all our heart. When we begin to obey what those who love God are told to do. Well, longing for someone is much the same as loving someone. So if we can answer the question, how do I love when I don't feel like loving? Then we can also answer the question, how do I long when I don't feel a longing? 
The answer is the same. We will learn to long for his coming when we obey what the Lord tells those who are longing for him to do. So how does James encourage those who need to work on their patience? Because these people he's writing to in verses 1 through 6 feel such a keen push away that they want the Lord to come and rescue them right now. And they're getting impatient. How does he tell them to live? Well, there are three more aspects of patience in our text. And each aspect, I think, teaches us what we should do to help us learn to wait for the Lord's coming with patience and to learn to anticipate it like we should. And I plan to cover numbers one, uh, actually two and three this morning. We covered one last week. And then next Lord's Day, before we gather around the table, we'll take the last one. But if the first aspect of patience in, es- in eschatological context, waiting for the Lord's judgment, is, is about the day he will come and vindicate the righteous. Then the second aspect is patience in divine illustration, by, by which I simply mean that God in this text gives us an illustration that helps us to appreciate the attitude we should have while we're waiting for the Lord to come. So here we find the hope of the expectant farmer in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. This is what he says. Be patient, therefore, brothers, under the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. All right, how does the farmer wait? What are we supposed to see here? Well, notice that he waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits in anticipation for something precious, something highly valuable. This word precious is the same word often used in the New Testament to refer to precious stones. It's also the word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.19 to refer to the precious blood of Christ. It's a good word. In this case, the farmer is waiting for something that is precious because of its life-giving, life-sustaining properties. Without food, he and his family and part of the community who is depending upon him will die. And when he begins each season of growth, he only has the promise of a harvest. He's a farmer. He's learned not to count his chickens before they hatch. He may think there's a harvest because last year uh, there was a harvest, but he is not guaranteed that. For the harvest to come, he has to do the next thing that James says here. He has to be patient about it. Patient about the coming of precious fruit, which doesn't mean he's sitting around his lawn chair watching his field hoping something grows. It means he's hard at work. But he's doing everything he's doing in anticipation that this rain will come. He says, till when, or he says, until it, the precious fruit, receives the early and late rains. The early and late rains were what the farmer depended on for the growth of the precious fruit. There was no rain, then there was no fruit. The early rains would fall in late October and early November. This is a different uh, agricultural uh, culture than we have here. But this, these, these early rains would come in October, late October, early November sometimes. That's when the planting occurred in that part of the world. The, the rain would soften and nourish the hard, baked ground. 
so that the planting could begin and the seeds would germinate. And then the plants were growing and they were beginning to come to maturity and beginning to bear fruit. Then the late rains would come. Those would be in April or May. And they would cause the fruit to ripen and the grain to open. The Old Testament saints living in an agrarian culture knew this very well. They depended on the rain all the time. In fact, God promised Israel before they went into the promised land that if they obeyed him faithfully, he would always give them rain for their land in its season. The early rain and the later rain. That they may gather in their grain and wine and oil, the wheat and barley and grapes and olives. So God's people were always dependent upon him to send the rain. It was a sign of God's faithfulness. In fact, Doug Moo, one of our commentators in uh, the, the, the James, he has the pillar commentary, if anybody cares, uh, in, uh, in James. It's a, it's a really, really good commentary. Uh, he, he mentions uh, that in the Old Testament, every time you read of the early and later rain, it is in the context of God's faithfulness to his people. Every year they would work and pray and wait and trust Work and pray and wait and trust. So what is God trying to teach us by directing our attention to the farmer? We don't have to wonder at the application because James himself gives us the application in verse 8. He says, you also be patient. In other words, you wait, trusting in God's faithfulness, looking for that which is most precious, that which is most life-giving, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But James also tells us what we must, we must do if we are going to wait successfully. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, we should work and pray and wait and trust in anticipation of the Lord's return. And to do that, we have to establish our hearts. That key word in this whole section is that word establish. He's already made it plain that we need, to, we need to be patient. We know what that is. We see the example of it in the farmer. What the farmer is doing that makes patience possible is he's establishing his heart. Establish is a word that means to strengthen, to be resolved, to be determined. It's actually the word sterizo, really. Uh, we get our word steroid from that in English. It has nothing to do with this word. If we, we're not, we can't go backwards and put steroid back into the first century. Uh, but it is interesting that that word actually comes from this eventually. It's, it's, a, it's a word that means strength. The word is beautifully used of Jesus in Luke 9.51, where it says, you'll recognize this verse, when the days drew near for him to be taken up through the cross, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Literally, Luke writes, he, his face, steadfastly set, using this word we find in James 5.8. Jesus was facing inhumane humiliation and pain and unspeakable sorrow, and he strengthened his resolve. He didn't shrink from it, he strengthened it to go forward unto death. Now, how did he do that? Hebrews 12.2 tells us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Literally, the lying before him joy is what the writer of Hebrews says. 
That's how we resolve ourselves. That's how we establish our hearts. We set before us the ultimate joy, the joy of the Lord's return, the precious coming of Christ. We realize this is on the path ahead. And we go toward it with resolve to do what God has called us to do until He comes. We don't know when it will take place. We have no more control over when the coming of Christ takes place than the farmer has over when the rain is going to come. Do you know how we wait for the Lord's coming then? We do what Jesus did. We do what the first century farmers did. We set our resolve and our will by the grace of God upon what God has called us to do. Reminding ourselves that today could be the day that the Lord returns. When I say what God has called us to do, I know I'm being very general. But God has called each of us to a particular task. He called each of us to obey the things in His Word. Most often, we don't need another sermon preached to us to tell us what those things are. We know what they are, and we know when we're neglecting them, and we know when we're following them. It's the way Daniel lived. When he was in exile in Babylon, the pagan empire of Babylon was not Daniel's home. And he knew that God would one day restore the nation of Israel and bring back their true home and bless them once again in the land. Daniel speaks of this in his prophecy later on in Daniel. But in light of that future day, Daniel 1.8 says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the things of that pagan culture. You see, there's a direct connection between looking for the Lord's precious coming, looking for that ultimate blessing, and being resolved to live for the Lord, to establish, strengthen your heart right now, to say no to sin and yes to God's will. There's a direct connection between the two. Everything that the farmer does, he does in anticipation of that life-giving rain. You set your heart to do what God has called you to do and to resist the pull of the world, and you do it with hope that the Lord may return any time while you are faithfully serving Him. You say, I I, I don't really feel that pull, like, wow, I want it to be today. I'm telling you, you put your mind in what God wants you to do and you go forward with resolve. That longing will grow in you because we're being obedient to what God says we should do if we're longing impatiently for that coming. But let's add to this the third aspect of patience in light of the Lord's coming that we see in the text. Because James also helps us to see patience through the perspective of godly examples. And here we are offered the testimonies of the prophets and Job. So he says in verses 10 and 11, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Think about them. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and I'm sure they had. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, we see a lot of similarities between this example of the prophets and Job and the illustration of the farmer. Both are serving the Lord, both are steadfast, they're, they're both, both sets here, the, the farmer and then the set of, of the, the prophets and, and, and Job. They're, they're both patient. They're both persistent in doing what's right. So he's not really adding anything yet to 
what he's saying by those comparisons. But there's an additional quality that we see in these examples that is not explicit in the farmer example. There is an additional element of serving while suffering. The farmer is hardworking and he puts in long hours, but the prophets and Job know what it is like to really suffer. That's why he says, as an example of suffering and patience. Like the righteous in verses 1 through 6. The prophets were often very respected, but if they were unliked by the kings they prophesied to, they could be severely mistreated. One prophet that comes easily to mind, because we don't have time to look at all the prophets in the Old Testament to see where James is going here, but but I'm sure one of the prophets on his mind is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to preach to a people who would not listen to him. In fact, God told him they were going to listen. He told a lot of prophets that, actually. But the people hated him. Most of them did. Jeremiah complains in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He says that. He writes that in his prophecy. Those of you who read Jeremiah, you know what I'm talking about. Jeremiah has a lot of personal information in there. Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks. He was thrown into a cistern and would have died if someone had not taken pity on him and moved him to a better place of confinement. Yet he continued to preach God's message to the people. Job, likewise, went through much suffering, both emotionally and physically, suffering the loss of children and servants and possessions and suffering the painful disease of a terrible plague. And all the while he was trying to contradict and speak to and reason with his friends. It's one thing to remain steadfast and it's another thing to suffer. But to remain steadfast while suffering is a special quality that James is asking for here. We're right to congratulate a college student who is steadfast in completing assignments and passing classes and earning an academic degree. We have a big celebration for them. It's called graduation. Everybody gets dressed up in robes and spends a lot of money to get their diploma and march across the stage. Because it's not an easy thing. It's It's not like everybody does this. You have to stay diligent over the course of several years. But when you have a student who also graduates with the same degree, who also had at the same time to hold down a job to have the money to pay for the degree, who is also dealing with a debilitating health issue that forces them to work through pain, whose family is unsupported, And the student even goes through some tragedy during the whole ordeal and comes to graduation day. Everybody recognizes this is something extraordinary. We can all live like the farmer for a little while. In fact, families have turned their farms into tourist attractions for wealthy vacationers. It's it's known as agritourism. I don't know if you've heard of it before. You can pay to stay on a farm and get up early and milk the cows and do light chores and see what it's like to live like a farmer. Really, you can do this. There's lots of places right in South Carolina that'll let you do this. People do it for the experience, maybe to see if they would like farming, maybe just to get an appreciation for how hard people work who provide fruits and vegetables and and dairy products. Some of you are thinking, yeah, follow me to work this week every day and I'll give you a vacation. (laughs) I'll show you what that's like. And honestly, farm life can probably be a very learning experience for people, especially for young people. But at the end of their farm vacation, 
they still get to go back to their more comfortable suburban neighborhoods sporting their I Survived t-shirts and feeling like they've done something and telling stories about how difficult it was, it was to live that way for a while. But few of them would be willing to live like a farmer every single day and every single week of their lives. That's why James points us in the direction of the prophets and Job. Their testimony is steadfastness under pressure. At the end of Job 1, after Job had tragically lost all he had, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the text reads, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But you know what? Job and Jeremiah and the other prophets, do you realize that they did not remain steadfast in times of suffering perfectly? Do you realize that they often struggled? Those of you who are familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah, let me remind you that Jeremiah often was disappointed. He struggled with doubt. He even struggled with bitterness against God for allowing some of the hard experience that he had. And he sometimes wallowed in self-pity and sometimes he blamed God to his face. Jeremiah did that. One of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But God sustained him and he remained through many trials and ups and downs a faithful prophet. When we look at our lives and we say, I've been faithful. Or we look at somebody else's life and and you look back at faithfulness. It's not because there was never a diversion from the path. Because we're weak and we need God's strength. But what God is looking for is this long-term direction, this long obedience. Where ultimately we are staying the course. We are going in the right direction. For those familiar with the book of Job, it's probably already occurred to you that Job suffered for a while in much pain and he actually got a little feisty with God. And he wanted to come before God and challenge him. He wanted to lay the question before God, why are you allowing this suffering when I've been so steadfast in what is right? And God graciously granted Job his wish. God appeared to him and gave Job an answer, beginning with the words, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? At the end of this speech, Job said, I put my hand over my mouth. That's called the Job salute. You know, there's nothing I can say. And God had to put Job back in his place. But in the end, he restored Job and blessed him more abundantly than before. You see, James says in verse 11, notice these words, you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's the only way we can stay the course under pressure. It's not because of our strength. It's because of the compassion and the mercy of the Lord. Because we are not going to have a perfect record when it comes to being steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're going to go through trials and hardships, and we're going to stop looking for the Lord's coming. And we're going to start looking at our trials. But in those times, the Lord does not abandon us. He doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't chide us or treat us sarcastically because he loves us. He's coming for us. And he wants us to learn to long for that coming. And we will learn to long for it through our obedience. How do we learn to long when we don't long 
especially when we don't really feel as much as we should to push away from the world with sting and this rejection of the culture. We do what God wants us to do faithfully and consistently with the realization that at any moment He could return. And when doing the will of God becomes difficult or challenging and we have to work through the suffering, by God's grace, we continue to be steadfast even if we falter. Even if we have to start again. I'm so glad that Proverbs tells us the just man falls seven times and gets up again. Because that means that the just are not defined by the fact that they never fall. The just are defined by the fact that they just keep getting up again. And it's only by God's grace. How do I know that this will cause us to long for the Lord's coming because this is what James tells believers to do who are impatient for his return. We can't force our desires. We can't make ourselves long for something we don't long for, but we can obey. We can watch the Lord transform our affections when we say no to the world and yes to God. We won't long for the Lord when we're playing when we should be working. And we're investing so much time enjoying all the entertainment of the world, but far too little of our time asking God to show us what He wants us to invest the brief number of years He has given to us. We don't learn to long for anything eternal when we're not giving our attention to anything eternal. But when we're literally living our lives in prayer, in the Word, growing in our knowledge of God and asking continually, Lord, what do you want me to do today? it is then that we feel more keenly the push away from the world and the desire to be with the Lord, which the Bible says is far better. That's what Paul says. And we begin to understand what it means to await the Lord's return patiently. And we understand then yet another way that we are called to live up to our faith. Father, thank you for...